This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. It's my music. You're listening to Music of the Mat on the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. Hello and welcome to Music of the Mat, the podcast devoted exclusively to the music of pro wrestling. It's all part of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. I'm your host, Andrew Rich. This is episode 140, and it's a look at some music by Ozzy Osbourne that was used in wrestling. And today I am joined by a returning guest here on the show. He is one of the hosts of Shake Them Ropes, which is also on the VOW network. It's Chris Novembrino. Hello again, Chris. Nice to be here, Andrew Rich. Nice to have you back, Chris, very much so, on uh, what's been a very uh, interesting day in the wrestling world. Uh, (laughs) uh, We are recording this the day that uh, Vince McMahon announced his um, retirement from WWE. And I know that this is not really the show to break this stuff down in in minute detail or whatever. I know you and uh, Jeff did that on your show, Chris, but... um, Holy shit, man! What the hell? <laughs> no, uh, I, I it is fascinating. Obviously, we knew at some point Vince McMahon was going to leave WWE. Over the last few years here, there have been a number of moves that suggest cleaning up the organization and getting it ready for a sale. So it, it seemed that that sale was coming. But I think in the back of all of our heads, there is always just this vision of Vince McMahon. In his mid 80s, still running shows somewhere in like in the 2030s and just quietly falling asleep during the middle of a show and not waking up like we just thought he was going to be doing this until you had to pry the remote control from his cold, dead hands. And it this end has clearly come not on his own terms. He, as I was joking to Jeff earlier, he at the end of all of this is the victim of the future endeavors treatment. Um, that, that he's basically kind of being whisked away. Sure, he's the majority shareholder, but like we are moving very quickly away from the Vince McMahon era. And uh, it, it seems to be happening because of acute news stories, which is really interesting. Um, and it does seem like there is more to come, that this was a storm. He had hoped this storm would pass. It didn't pass. Um, and it seems like there's still more to come. And, and I, I think last my last thought here, Andrew, is that the last several weeks uh, that have involved Vince McMahon segments on television, whether Vince <laughs> McMahon directly or Vince McMahon by proxy this week using Titus O'Neil as like his human body stunt double have been fascinating Freudian analysis pieces. Uh, just sitting there and, and, and analyzing what is going on inside this guy's head as he's been talking to us about the need for goodwill these days and how WWE uh, a show that historically it's used to run a safe zone, it, a yeah, safe zone yeah. and, and, and has never been political, Andrew. Oh, never no, of course political. not. No. Yeah, uh, that that was uh, the safe zone got me. But but never been political. It was even the more bald faced lie here. Right. I, I mean, the, the 45th president was featured prominently on their television regularly. So, no, it, it's fascinating. And I, I think uh, my last thought here is, is that. 
we will look back when we're doing the history on all of this on the demobilization of Triple H by Vince McMahon. I think we're going to look at that as a fatal internal error for Vince that he needed that political ally and he and and when he removed Hunter that that set some things in motion that he wouldn't ha- didn't have a way of stopping anymore. Yeah, this whole thing to me it's it's still weird to process because uh, I mean it was a normal day, a normal Friday and then that Vince tweet popped up which I mean that alone was like wait, what? And then the corporate press release popped up, and then Twitter started going into hyperdrive. And, and this is one of those days where I'm glad Twitter is around, because the jokes are flying, the memes are flying, news breaking left and right. I, I was just glued to my screen. Because, I mean, yeah, I, I never thought I would see this day come. I'm sure most people didn't, you know, because uh, given all the bad shit that Vince has done over the years and skated or, or you know, only gotten minor cuts and bruises or whatever... I, too, thought that he would be just, you know, in that position as the head of the snake until the day he died, until the day he died, you know, in office, so to speak. But I was wrong. And I can only imagine just the nuclear bomb that's about to drop that forced Vince to go. Because if he stayed on this whole time with all the crazy, you know, shit that's happened to him over the years, you know, how big is this upcoming, you know, story that's going to hit or whatever, this stuff can be scandal for him to say, okay, I need to leave now. You know, it must be pretty monumental. Yeah. This story has been getting steadily worse for him throughout, right? Like initially it just seemed like it was the one paralegal and that was bad enough. And then it went from the one paralegal to a series of payments over a number of years. Um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't even really want to speculate, but my mind can certainly go to any number of next steps uh, when you know that someone has a number of partners over a number of years that could be devastating stuff um, and make this story just infinitely worse. Uh, Yeah, and I, I personally am thrilled to see him go. Because while Vince McMahon, I I am not as down on him, I guess, maybe as some people are. He's not a great guy or anything. But, like, you know, you look at his run in the 90s. He had this, like, shining moment where over this period of time, in five years, he managed to generate not one but two, but, like, arguably three in Mick Foley generational stars. Uh, And and they really connected with America on a meaningful level. Don't forget about how big of a seller Have a Nice Day was as a book. But since then, since WWF became WWE, the last 20 years have been really a cultural running in place or a cultural erosion in relevance with a focus basically singularly being around what that stock price is. Uh, They wanted to get that stock price up. It didn't matter if the show was good or bad. And when they started getting feedback from the market, that didn't matter if the show was good or bad. I've really felt like we've been circling around a drain here, um, in particular over the last decade. Uh, After Daniel Bryan, where he just didn't want to push Bryan Danielson for reasons, uh, it's felt like there's been no ideas. Or the one idea they've had is Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar. Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar. Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar. Um, And now Brock is, in my opinion, holding them up for more money. Um, 
but he's certainly not he's certainly not going to be at SummerSlam. It looks like, um, at least tentatively. Uh, and there's some reaching out to Goldberg. But yeah, dude, I don't think the last 20 years of Vince's run are going to be really looked at favorably by wrestling historians. I think this has been a fairly boring product over the last 20 years. It's had some good shows along the way, but boring stories throughout. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm nostalgic for my youth as well, but. You know, I mean, at some point, that's got to be outweighed by the, the, the mountains and mountains and mountains of awful stuff they don't know the year. So uh, just the way it kind of goes. So, um, yeah, I mean, right now it's it's still early days, so to speak, with this whole thing. So I can only imagine what's going to come later on. Um, yeah, I, I, I am rooting. I guess the big thing I am rooting for is I am rooting for um, NXT to get rebranded back to the black and gold thing. I, I hope we get out a multicolored vomit era lickety split. Yeah, I don't watch the show either way, but, uh, you know, going from black and gold, uh, skulls and eagles NXT to rainbow raw and then back to skulls and eagles NXT. That's a that's a pretty hard snapback right there for sure. You, um, you just pretend it never happened. You just pretend that never happened. It was it was a bad forward. dream. It was all a bad. It was dream all like a that. dream. It was like that uh, season of Dallas. It was all a dream. <laughs> and the show's ratings recovered after that. I, I if you recall, Andrew. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. But um, anyway, uh, we'll transition here from uh, one pop culture icon to another. Uh, <laughs> Today we're going to do a, a different kind of episode than we normally do on the show. Normally we talk about a certain wrestler or, or team or promotion or whatever. This time we're talking about a certain artist. And many years ago, myself and Chris Maffei did an episode about Metallica in wrestling. And that was a lot of fun. And this time we're talking about another metal legend here, Ozzy Osbourne, the Prince of Darkness himself. Uh, known for both his solo work and as founding member of Black Sabbath, uh, arguably the best and most important metal band of all time. I'm a big fan of both, and uh, I actually saw Sabbath with Ozzy on the End Tour a few years ago, and it was an amazing show. Um, have you ever seen Ozzy live, Chris, at all, uh, whether with Sabbath or without? I have never seen Ozzy live. Uh, I think I had a chance to see Ozfest back when I was a younger pup. Uh, I remember that we definitely would try to call into the radio station and win tickets for Ozfest every year. We never, never was able to pull it off. Um, I, and I love Black Sabbath. I, I just can't throw down enough superlatives about the the sound that Black Sabbath pioneered. And I think you nailed it. They're the most important metal band. Are they the best metal band? Ooh, I don't know about that. But are they the most important metal band? Going away. Uh, I I think no one band has more defined the sound of what metal became than Black Sabbath. And without Black Sabbath, the entire sort of history of heavy metal becomes pretty incoherent relatively quickly. It's hard to imagine a lot of these other bands existing without them. Definitely, definitely, yeah, and um, of course here we're looking at, you know, Ozzy himself specifically, and uh, I was doing some thinking about this, about, you know, Ozzy and wrestling, and, uh, uh, you know, of course Ozzy has been involved in wrestling at some points over the years, uh, WrestleMania 2, uh, he's been on Raw and SmackDown a couple of times, but um, I was thinking about, you know, any similarities between Ozzy and wrestling, and a big one, of course, is the theatricality of it all. You know, Ozzy is known for being a very bombastic charismatic over-the-top character let's go crazy let me see your fucking hands and all that stuff and 
the bat incident, you know, very much a showman in a lot of ways. But as well, like with wrestling, there is a bit of kayfabery going on here because, you know, Ozzy, the guy, is this uh, rather demure family man who can barely talk. And Ozzy, the performer, whether it's in studio or on stage, he sounds clear as a bell when he's singing. And he's moving around and being fun and being vivacious and, and bombastic again. So, you know, like any good wrestler, he knows how to turn it on. And like a lot of wrestlers as well, there have been times where those kayfabe lines have blurred. And he's, you know, just as crazy offstage as he is on. Maybe even more so, actually. But uh, I think that was a long time ago when Ozzy was a much younger man. And uh, I, I think old man Ozzy at this point has uh, definitely chilled out a lot in recent years, Chris. Yes, uh, I I would concur that the you know post the aughts or whatever you know that this Ozzy is on the straight and narrow. Sharon Osbourne has got Ozzy straightened up. I I will definitely note if you're looking at his biography though, the wild days go pretty late in life, and maybe this is oh, just yes. as, as as I'm getting a little bit older, it it is pretty wild to read some of the stories and go like, oh whoa, he was like 41 when he's you know doing a rail of ants off of the street with like my thing motley crew right like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah yeah no like, he he's i mean he's a wild guy uh and uh it, it definitely slowed down but you know you live that many years on the road there, there's definitely a toll that it takes i mean in a lot of ways I, you know he kind of reminds me a little bit of rick flair um you know kind of to get back into the current events here a little bit you know Ha definitely road torn up, right? Like Rick, Rick is, you know, in, of an advanced age, but you can tell that his body's been really road worn and Ozzy, Ozzy the same way. Um, I think the other way that he is like wrestling though, or he is like a professional wrestler is that Ozzy Osbourne realized that you need to keep refreshing and updating your gimmick, kind of like a Chris Jericho does or something like that. And so Throughout his different careers, Ozzy Osbourne, who basically doesn't really like "quote unquote" write music, oh, whatever you're like, oh, I love that Ozzy song. You, you're what you're really saying is you like the song that Ozzy is singing over, um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, that he that he wrote the melody to and stuff, but the actual music and the sound of the band and stuff is always outsourced. Um, but I think that's actually part of what has kept Ozzy current through the different decades and the different changes in sound or whatever. So, you know, you have in the seventies, you're working with Tony Iommi in the 1980s, you're working with Randy Rhodes. And that probably would have gone on even longer had Randy Rhodes not passed. Then in the nineties, he starts linking up with Zach Wilde and black label society, um, and, and doing that sort of thing. He has been steadily updating and refreshing his gimmick like a good wrestler does. Yes, very much like a Chris Jericho or Undertaker. He's always had a variety of looks over the years. And um, you're right about the writing part, too, because, uh, you know, Geezer Butler wrote the lyrics in Black Sabbath and Ozzy did the, the melody and all that stuff. Um, and when Ozzy went solo, you look at the writing credits for that stuff. It always says, you know, Ozzy Osbourne and X, you know, whomever. So that did, you know, carry over into his solo career. To my knowledge, um, he doesn't really play instruments like with any level of depth. He might know a little piano. Yeah, not not really. Uh, you know, Ozzy is very much a front man through and through you know, with the singing and being the face of the group or being the face of the music project as opposed to the real meat potato stuff 
making the songs. Um, but we're talking about similarities between Ozzy and wrestling. You mentioned Ric Flair. Another big one right there. It's the question, how are you still alive? Because <laughs> I also read Ozzy's book, I Am Ozzy. And yeah, there's a very, very big chunk of that book where you can't go past a single page without Ozzy talking about being drunk or being high on whatever drug of choice he has. It, it's insane. And that's not to mention the illnesses he's had or that ATV accident where he was, you know, almost dead. Like, it's a miracle he's still alive. Make no mistake. And I can think of a few wrestlers who also fit that bill pretty well because there have been a lot of premature deaths in wrestling over the years, bar none. But then there are those guys who just keep going and going and going and going despite you know, literal decades of abuse, either in the ring or out. Uh, it, it's pretty remarkable, Chris. Have you ever watched Decline of Western Civilization Part 2? I have seen the clip of Ozzy in the kitchen yes. making breakfast. Uh, uh, okay, one, it's, yeah. Yeah, his hand is shaking, uh, pouring orange juice, and it, it's going everywhere. Over everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When it goes on the eggs, he's like making eggs and it's the most chaotic way of making eggs you've ever seen. It, it is ju like just incoherent. And then, yeah, like he's trying to pour the orange juice and it's just spilling everywhere. Whole movie's great. Uh, but yeah, I, that's 86. Uh, I mean, Ozzy is not a young man there. He is in his mid 40s. Uh, it, yeah, it's a real it's really amazing. He's still with us. Yeah. Yeah, he's still with us and uh, still making music, too. Uh, in fact, he's got a new album coming out in a couple of months, Patient Number 9. And I've heard the first couple of singles, and they sound pretty good. You know, obviously it's not the Ozzy of his heyday, but you know, he still has enough of a voice to get by. And um, it's just nice to see Ozzy still being around and still active and making music. Uh, knock on wood, of course. Don't want to jinx the guy. But uh, to have Ozzy still with us is, uh, is pretty nice, Chris. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's great, especially for all the musicians who get to work inside of the Ozzy Osbourne brand. It's a it's a great thing for the resume. And it's it's cool that he's still basically making work for musicians. Um, I, I mean, I I don't want that to come off sounding derisive or anything like that. I, I mean, what you just basically said, like, yeah, uh, yeah, he's not what he once was. No, like we're now deeply into the era of overdub Ozzy, where Ozzy like sings sings the thing and then sings it lower and then sings it higher and that is the vocal throughout <laughs> everything chris jericho also uses this trick and that is i will say a trick that has become very popular with guys who uh, don't have the goods anymore on vocals as a way of sort of masking the um lack of power on a single performance but i still think it's great that he's out there um ozfest does tremendous numbers and like look i i support the music industry i want musicians to work and ozzy makes a lot of work for musicians that's great mm -hmm. so what we're going to do here is talk about 10 ozzy songs from his career that were used in wrestling uh, five from black sabbath Five from his solo years. Um, obviously, there are more than that, but uh, I figured it'd be easier to just pick some out and, and go from there. And uh, a lot of these songs are well-known. Some of them are a little bit more obscure, but uh, it's going to be fun regardless, I'd say. So um, we'll go in chronological order here, uh, starting off with Black Sabbath's debut album, Black Sabbath, 1970. And this is the title track. So off of Black Sabbath, this is Black Sabbath with Black Sabbath. Thank you. 
to borrow an old New Japan catchphrase, this is evil. Everything is evil. Yes, this is the birth of evil in heavy metal. I mean, there were harder riffs and blues beforehand. There was metal before this song, but I mean, we're talking straight up doom metal here. We're talking Satan, and it's all thanks to that riff. Down, down, down. So heavy, so ominous and scary. I mean, it's literally referred to as the Devil's Tritone, Diabolus in Musica, which sounds even scarier thanks to the way Tony Iommi plays it, because for those that don't know the story, uh, Tony had some of his fingertips chopped off in a sheet metal accident in the factory that he worked at, so he made these, like, plastic fingertips and detuned his guitar strings, which created this really heavy sound. So that freak accident gave birth to the Black Sabbath sound and just pretty much changed music forever because of it. So yeah, you add in like the opening as well with the rain, the thunder, the church bell. I mean, this song is over 50 years old and it's still one of the scariest hunting songs ever, Chris. Oh, what is so crazy to me too about the recording of this first album of Black Sabbath is that they did it for under a thousand dollars. It's like some like ridiculously comically low amount of money. And the production on the opening track, I've always thought is great with the rain and everything. Uh, you mentioned Iomi losing his fingertips just days before Sabbath was going out on his tour. He initially tried plastic. He messed around with leather. He, he did a number of, of different things. Uh, ultimately, one of the things that definitely helped him out here is detuning the guitar. He usually biased towards half a step down because he played on Gibson SGs. Uh, Gibson uh, is one of the two big guitar makers. Gibson uses a slightly shorter scale neck length than Fender. So you can't go too much below E flat, half a step down before you start really getting like weird noodliness out of the strings. But that extra half step down helped him out. He's not the first guy to tune down. Hendrix was also tuning down around this time too. But where Iomi does start to innovate is he also adds in the drop D tuning, where we take the lowest string and we drop that down an additional whole step from standard tuning, giving us, um, for Black Sabbath purposes, a low C sharp. That is a very bassy note. And when you contrast that bassy note, that C sharp, to what was generally the standard you'd hear on rock radio at the time, which was an E, um, which is uh, several notes up here. Let me um, actually just play that right quickly because you can hear the difference. So here's D, or here's uh, C sharp. Here would be E. It's so much higher. And so having all of your riffs centered around this low C, this low C sharp, I'm sorry, um, opens up a, a, a new and, and wide range of, of options. Um, also of note, with the Tony Iommi finger loss, um, there are a number of things that change. He obviously starts biasing towards a slightly slower guitar style. Um, so Tony Iommi is not trying to go blazing fast, and Black Sabbath riffs are very attainable because... Hey, he's missing fingertips, y'all. He's like working with prosthetics. Like, like that's how he, I mean, it's, it's unbelievably impressive and innovative. And the last thing that I, I associate with the Iomi sound um, that comes off of this is his usage of overdubbing. 
Um, in particular, during solos. Um, I, I think we're mostly going to be listening to the intro riffs to these songs because that's what the wrestlers come out to. But when you get to a solo, like, for example, in uh, War Pig or in, in Iron Man as well, um, Tony Iommi would actually take multiple passes at the solo because he didn't play very fast. But the combined effect of hearing these three different takes, um, it feels like you are in a guitar vortex. And his slow style of playing actually creates enough space for each one of these uh, guitar solos to kind of do their own thing. And now people know why I have you on here. It's to get super nerdy with the music talk. Uh, <laughs> oh, bro, I, I could have kept going. I was just like, all right, I, I've got to write it out. It's like a, it's a, it's a general public thing. I, I could get more Dorcas. Uh, we, we could absolutely go deeper oh, on, on the mechanics of Iomi. Uh, all right, well, I guess, okay, last thing. Last thing. <laughs> so Tony Iomi's signature tone. Um, the, the tone we associate with Black Sabbath um, is achieved in a really interesting way um, that's sort of counterintuitive. Um, he uses Laney amplifiers, which were a British-made company. Um, and, and then what he used is a pedal that is known as a treble booster. So this actually increases the signal from the guitar going into the front end of the amp, pushing the amp into a distorted overdrive tone. Like, Iomi literally just dimed everything. By dime, I mean turned everything up to 10, like Spinal Tap style. Um, and uh, so did Van Halen. A lot of guys used to basically just like over push everything to make the amp work harder. And then he would push it with this thing called the treble booster. Um, so that signature uh, Black Sabbath tone is is being done off of a Laney amplifier and a, uh, a range master is the name of the unit. It's a treble booster. So it boosts the overall signal, but with a specific emphasis on the higher frequencies um, so that you get this like cut through thing. That's the Iomi way. Okay, okay. Um, well, getting back to Ozzy here, uh, I do want to give credit to him in the way he sings on this song. Because, you know, later Ozzy would, would sing higher and, and be more melodic or whatever. Here he's got this lower voice, not really singing, more like fearful wailing. What is this that stands before me? Figure in black, which points at me. And later on he's pleading, oh no, no, please, God help me. Like, he really puts you in that story and you really feel the torment and the fear there. And it just, it builds up into this ending that gets faster and faster where, again, it's all very theatrical in how it's presented there, Chris. Y'all, you know, who pulls this together too for me is Bill Ward. He is like the, the unsung hero of Black Sabbath. He, he is the drummer of Black Sabbath. He was a jazz drummer before joining Sabbath. And you hear those jazz influences all throughout the record. He makes such interesting choices on how to accent these riffs. And whenever they need to go faster or they need drive, I feel like his drumming is so essential to them achieving the the moments they're trying to achieve, especially on these early recordings. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you mentioned the production earlier. Um, this whole album took two days to make. Day one was recording the album live in the studio. Day two was mixing it. And there you go. There, There's the album. So... Yeah, this, the sound quality isn't amazing by any stretch, but but to me that griminess, that that grittiness and dinginess, it it adds to the whole dark atmosphere and mood, Chris, for sure. Yes, uh, the the big thing that I think is different on this recording than the other recordings that they they clearly would have done had they had more time. 
um, is the Oprah dub work. Um, there, there, there's much less of this. And that's again, because it was recorded at such an accelerated timetable on such a limited budget, but Ozzy, in addition, I, I liked going in and retracking his guitar parts to thicken them up. That's a big part of the sound. Metallica would, would definitely take cues off of the over the Iomi overdubbing strategy, but Ozzy also, uh, I mean, not just later Ozzy. I mean, even like, you know, peak Ozzy, peak Ozzy very much works in, in overdubs. So he would sing something and then sing it again, um, in a mirrored way to just create more depth and chorusing and that sort of thing. And that's missing on this first album because they just simply wouldn't have had time to go in and do all that overdub work. Right, right. And uh, as far as the wrestling goes, um, Kevin Sullivan, the Taskmaster himself, came out to this in ECW once and a few other places as well. Which makes sense because, you know, he had the whole occult gimmick for many, many years. And what better way to, you know, express that whole occult Satan thing than this song? It's, it's pretty perfect. This one just like evokes menace, right? It like that super the slow pace that Bill Ward's drums are just sort of like pummeling as as Iomi's hitting the signature opening inverted tritone riff. Uh, that that just is so perfect for a monster heel to come out to. Mm-hmm, for sure. Moving on now to the second Black Sabbath album, Paranoid, 1971 their most successful and popular album. This is the opening track, War Pigs. So another iconic Sabbath song here, uh, arguably their best, perhaps, and it's a great album opener in general, I think. That chunky guitar riff, you know, the down, 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 with the sirens going off and the bass line from Geezer and then the burn out. There's like three or four great riffs in this song alone, and... Like I said earlier, Ozzy really finds himself as a singer here with this song and the album. So, uh, yeah, just a, a fantastic song, Chris. It's great. Yeah, right. Like, uh, one, one thing that it does uh, that is definitely a staple of the Sabbath sound is it opens up with a cut time riff. Uh, so we, we are starting off here. Um, and, and you can hear you can hear Iomi's uh, key center, his, his slightly lower key center. <laughs> That that is an E flat, and like that that's the get. Yeah, well, it gets gets real low, 
right out the gate here. Um, and, and I think that that really sort of establishes the tone. I love the way this song ends. I always feel like that's underappreciated on this. Ending with that little na 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 and it just keeps speeding up. Yeah. Like, like a tape kind of like spinning. It, I, I'm pretty sure they did that effect by just having this tape like speed up and like that's how they put it on the master. Uh, but I, I just like, I love that. Uh, it, it's a great song. Gotta love Geezer Butler's bass just kind of thumping along there all jazz-like. In the opening part, um, when they're when they're slow, that's where you really get the jazz element of Sabbath coming out. Um, I, I will say, I think it's a bit of a hot take to say it's like I, I get I get your argument, but like there are so many good songs on Masters of Reality, which um, I feel like maybe wrestlers have not used nearly as often, um, like Hand of Doom and that sort of thing. Uh, the, 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 there are some sleepers for best song. But uh, no, this this is a great one, dude. Kind kind of does it all, right? Like you, you get all the different feels. You get the cut time thing. You get the overdubby solo. Like if you go into the solo section here, you can absolutely hear some of those classic Tony Iommi overdubs. Um, and Ozzy's got a great hook. Well, uh, not to Sabbath explain you here, but uh, Hand of Doom is on Paranoid, not Master of Reality. Oh, oh no! Um, is it? But oh, but I do. God. Oh God! I do agree. No, I, I do agree. In, <laughs> but but I do agree that um, that album is great too because it's got like uh, Children of the Grave. It's got Into the Void, Sweet Leaf, After Forever. And I should have said Into the Void. Why why didn't I should have just said Into the Void? Because that's like that's a great, great riff. Yeah, it's a great riff. Yeah. But, um, but as far as War Pigs goes, I think this song is a great example of a lot of Sabbath and Ozzy songs, which is, you know, using dark imagery and satanic imagery as a metaphor, which in this case is war. Generals gathered in their masses, just like witches at black masses, evil minds that plot destruction, sorcerers of death's construction. So it's, you know, it's equating mystical evil with real life evil, um... Which is funny because, you know, the band was like, you know, labeled Satanist from the jump. They're not Satanists. You know, Ozzy's very much a Christian through and through. Uh, same with Tony, I believe. Um, I mean, they just they just use this stuff as an effective metaphor. Um, but even without that stuff, you know, you've got like politicians hide themselves away. They only started the war. Why should they go out to fight? They leave that all to the poor. Y- you still have that clear painted picture on war and class politics and all that stuff, Chris. Yes, absolutely. And originally, the album was actually supposed to be called War Pigs. Um, It is changed to Paranoid, um, resulting in this weird disconnect of like, what is going on with this album cover? And why is this album cover called Paranoid? Um, Or like, why is this album called Paranoid? Because like, there's this dude and he's clearly like, like a war guy. Like, that's what's going on here. Um, He's pink like a pig. Yeah. 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 No, right. Like, it's it's pretty explicit what what is supposed to be happening on the album cover but it was considered to be too political and and, and too sort of explicitly critical of vietnam and i mean i i would certainly think it's fair i would say it's fair to say that like war pigs is very much a if not explicitly a critique of vietnam although i would say it would be um i it is certainly a critique of colonial expansionist sorts of styles of war like this is uh, it, like war pigs is not a song about like you know defending the ukrainian homeland from the russians being like ah 
we're, we're the war pigs here, guys. No, this is this is about expansionist people. This would be like about the Russians. They are the war pigs in this narrative. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know uh, it was used by the Harris brothers in ECW as a theme. Uh, it was used by Ian Rodden as a theme at one point. Uh, and, and recently, they, they, God, was... can someone else better than than the neo-Nazi guys please use I this th- song for the love I of God? Know. I know, yeah, you literally hate to see it, but <laughs> but recently this was the theme for uh, NXT War Games uh, last year, I believe. And uh, it's funny, like the song is very much an anti-war song, and yet it's being used for a show that promotes, you know, we're going to war, weapons, violence, the cage, ah, and. It's like, have you guys read the lyrics? You know what this song is actually about, but I guess this is one of those cases where it's like, you know, born in the USA, where they just took it at surface level. But um, the riff's pretty cool, so there is that, I guess, Chris. <laughs> Especially for the opening intro, which is, if I recall, was what they were using as like the voiceover bed. They were like kind of using the the sirens and the, the slow part. Um, it wasn't like the heavy part or the later part of the song either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just a funny thing to me, you know. So. No, I agree. No, it's it, it, it's 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 incongruous. It's kind of like yeah. <laughs> uh, using every breath you take at your wedding. Right, right, yeah. Well, uh, also off of Paranoid, uh, this is the title track. It's Paranoid. So this is the signature Black Sabbath song. It's their biggest hit, much number four on the UK charts. And uh, it's funny because, you know, as the story goes, the song was written as album filler because they did the album and they still needed like three minutes to fill. So Tony just came up with a riff, Geezer wrote the lyrics, Ozzy sang it, and that was it. You know, it's it was basically just an afterthought and it became their biggest song ever, which, you know, is... <laughs> Sort of a common tale in music over the years, I suppose. Um, so yeah, not my not my favorite song by Sabbath by a long shot. There are others I like a lot more, but uh, still a classic, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, I, it, the legend is that this this song was written quickly as a filler track, and as someone who plays guitar and sort of breaks down songs for a living here, I completely 100% believe it. Um, th- this song, I mean, it, it is quite literally, you're starting on E, uh, which is like, you know, the, the most basic of power chords here on, on the guitar, um, and we're literally just hammering on. Seven nine seven nine. Like if I was gonna explain to you guys how to play this on the guitar, I'm not trying to do this all over the radio. Literally every note is either a seven or a nine. 
That is all that is going on here. Index ring finger, index ring finger, index ring finger for that whole main riff. Um, and then the, the other part of the riff just oscillates between seven and five. It is something you would do very easily. The guitar has dots on three, five, seven, nine, and 12. So those are very clear visual reference points. And if you're just looking to write something relatively quickly, you do that. In fact, this entire song basically exists on the dots. That's seven, five, 10, 9, 7. The only time we're not actually on the dot is 10. But even the little turnaround is still on the dots. We're going 7, 3, 5, 7. Uh, like, like, everything's on the dots. Uh, no, it, it is an easy plug and chug thing. But like so many great rock riffs, sometimes simple works. Sometimes simple creates a real earworm. Um, I think the brevity of this song is what makes it work. I think the fact that it is only two minutes, it doesn't have a chance to overstay its welcome. It just, it's here, it's gone. It works great as a radio song. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, the song is called Paranoid and the music definitely goes along with that. The fast pace, the chugga chugga riff, very much a, a manic, nervous energy to it. Um, the lyrics though, they're more about depression than paranoia. People think I'm insane because I'm frowning all the time. Make a joke and I will sigh, and you will laugh and I will cry. Happiness I cannot feel, and love to me is so unreal. Like, the word paranoid is never even spoken in the song at all. Bit weird in that sense, I think. Um, but I guess, you know, paranoid is uh, a bit better as a song title than depression, I guess, Chris. I don't know. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, but like even the "Can you help me occupy my brain" line isn't that what he says there? Yes. Yeah, when he says that, he's not saying like, "I keep seeing people, please take my mind off the paranoid delusions." It's so much more like, "I'm depressed because I don't have a woman anymore." Um, and I, I get the, the closest you get to the actual like mental state stuff is that he breaks up with his girlfriend because he becomes such a paranoid guy. Um, maybe. Maybe this is supposed to be a song about like not being able to trust your girlfriend, like like your significant other, but like you're paranoid about her, and so like you you break. I I don't know. I'm trying to make some sense out of it. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, I did find this out in my research. Uh, apparently, Abdullah the Butcher used this song at one point. Which you know, when I think of guys who can match the fast paced energy of Paranoid. Abdullah the Butcher, uh, not high on the list. Um, like, I get the whole crazy vibes aspect of it, but I don't see Abby really racing out to this song here, Chris. Do you? <laughs> no, sometimes he did make a hot march to the ring. You know, he, he I mean, it's, he slows down once he gets to the ring, but he'll make a hot trot to the ring. Um, is, is Abby throwing stuff at people? Because uh, that kind of works with Paranoid. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm with you. It's, he's not the first pick that I would have used. No, no. Um, I would have gone with Ultimate Warrior because there's a guy who sprints to the ring. He has that manic, crazy energy that this song has. And also his own theme sounded very close to this one. So, you know, it, it kind of lines up there, Chris, I think. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting... I hadn't ever really thought about, like, the Ultimate Warrior's theme kind of being paranoid inside out. Like, or like essentially like an inverted version of paranoid, but kind of is. That's interesting. Huh. Yeah, the more you know. <laughs> one more song of Paranoid here, and uh, it's a big one. This is Iron Man. 
played this way back on the first Real Songs from the Territories episode with uh, one Jeff Hawkins, your co-host. And, um, of course, famously, this was the theme for The Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal. And I said it then, I'll say it now, this song is absolutely perfect for that team. Those opening extended notes, and the main riff, it's so intimidating and so powerful and badass. And if you're the Road Warriors, whose entire legacy is guys who destroy people and kick ass, then yeah, it's it's a match made in heaven, Chris. Yeah, I, this is another song though too, where like the lyrics don't really fit the like the vibe of the songs, right, like right. using war pigs. Yeah, right. You know, like Iron Man's like it's depressing. That's why I like the song so much. It, it grows on me more and more over the years. Where he's like not like here to like annihilate the world. That's kind of what he was made for. But like he's depressed because that's his only purpose. Uh, that like like literally all he's here to do is fight. Um. And then obviously he plots his vengeance and that sort of thing um, because that's his only purpose. Uh, I mean, it's great for the Road Wars, though. Like the 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 intro there um, is achieved by Tony Iommi actually bends the low E string from behind the nut of the guitar and releases it. So you have your low E. That's what it sounds like when you actually bend it using your thumb there. And that's what Tony Iommi does. And with the Iomi sort of overdubbing thing, you just get this like, it sounds like, I don't know, like a, like a hell beast braying, right? Like, like it, it's, it, it really goes way beyond just the value of that one note or whatever. It, it's, it's something much heavier. It's, it's an incredible sound. Mm-hmm. And you have the uh, vocal at the beginning with the distorted, you know, voice. I am Iron Man. It does add to the monstrous uh, nature of the song for sure, but um, but you're right. The song itself is pretty depressing, all told. Um, now the time is here for Iron Man to spread fear. Vengeance from the grave kills the people he once saved. It's uh, not a happy tune, not a rah rah let's go kind of song at all. But um, but listen, you know when you grow up in post World War II Birmingham, England, where everything is gray and bombed out and bleak, it. It does play a part in shaping your worldview, I think, Chris. Yeah, for sure. Um, I also I've always seen like a little bit of dash of like Mary Shelley's, Shelley's Frankenstein here with Iron Man. Um, that like like he he sort of uh, he was this thing that should not be, and now that that thing that should not be ha, ha, is coming back and wreaking havoc on the town at the end of the song. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know a few others have used this song over the years as a theme. Uh, Rob Conway and OVW. Uh, Zeus, the Japanese wrestler in Osaka Pro, um, but this is the Road Warriors theme through and through, for sure. Um, although, this did inspire a rip-off WCW theme later on for a Mr. Vince Russo, because when I think of people who deserve an Iron Man theme, I think of Hawk and Animal, the face paint, the spiked shoulder pads, the big muscles, and I think of Vince Russo. You know, it's a total one-to-one comparison there, Chris. No doubt about it. Yeah, I, I mean, it just completely fits the vibe, right? You know, like, not, not, nothing. The, the slow, menacing walk to the ring that Vince Russo used to do. I, I remember quaking in my boots as that man with his 
sports outfit jersey thing that he'd be wearing on any given day. <laughs> Slowly and angrily made his way to the ring and then spoke in a gruff New York accent incoherently for several minutes at a time. Iron Man really captured that moment for me. Bro, I swear to God, the Iron Man is going to travel through time to protect humanity. And then, boom, swerve, he turns heel on them and destroys mankind. It's a great story, bro. Great story. He's got vengeance. It turns out that he's held, he's been holding it against these people all along. They made him. He's now breaking them. You like that? <laughs> Next big uh, ratings boom right there, for sure. For sure. Hot angle. Moving on now to the last Sabbath song here of the episode. And we're going to skip ahead a few albums to the fourth Sabbath album, 1972's Black Sabbath Volume 4. Very appropriate name there, I think. This song is called Supernaut. songs we've played before in this episode are all very well-known Sabbath songs, but uh, this is a deeper cut. You know, Volume 4 is a great album full of deeper cuts, and uh, this song rules. I love the riff. I love the breakdown in the middle there by Bill Ward. Uh, again, you mentioned him being a jazz drummer. There you go. And it's definitely more of an experimental album than what they did before. Not just with the music, uh, but with the types of drugs they used, because... This is when the band started getting very, very, very into cocaine. I mean, they were just snorting mountains of that shit left, right, and center. Because, as it turns out, when you've got a cocaine habit, and also a lot of money, you can use that money to buy more cocaine. It all works out great. So, yeah, very much a turning point for the band in a lot of ways here, Chris. Yeah, I, I mean, this, this is a great... This is a great riff. Um, this, you can hear Tony Iommi using drop detuning here. This is what essentially what drop detuning allows for is on the bottom three strings, we get, we get a power chord, which is kind of the common building block for a lot of rock riffs. Um, this riff, when I was taking a listen to it and then taking a look at it on guitar here, what it reminds me a lot of, um, you can see where Rage Against the Machine got a lot of cues for a lot of their riffs. Like, I, I don't want to cycle through every single Rage riff, but like, it, you hear that? That that is like the absolute Rage thing. Here'd be like testify. And yeah, yeah. Where is it going? Dude? I mean, it, it, it's all right there. Um, this, this is a great riff. Uh, I like when the when the guitars come in. 
They got the harmonies going on there. Uh, Tony Iommi drops that higher third there. They sort of like thicken up the riff a little bit. Um, and then, yeah, the, the percussive break here in the middle. Uh, I mean, it's just flying. Uh, you got the hand percussion going on in there, too. Uh, it, it's a great riff. Great riff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as far as the lyrics go, um, on the same album, you have the song called Snowblind, which is about, what else, cocaine use. But I think this song is, too, in a way. Because you look at lyrics like... I want to reach out and touch the sky. I want to touch the sun, but I don't need to fly. I'm going to climb up every mountain of the moon and find the dish that ran away with the spoon. No talk of Satan, no talk of war, destruction. These feel more like manic cocaine lyrics than doom and gloom lyrics, Chris. Yeah, mountain of moon dust is pretty clear, Andrew. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we have to get too, too creative here to think about, like, what is a mountain of moon dust like? Hmm. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, real clear. Uh, and honestly, frankly, I listen to songs like this, and they, I, I always kind of find them like a little bit depressing whenever there are songs like about like heroin or cocaine like this. Like, you know, it's one thing for them to write like Sweet Leaf, um, with pop being you know benign, but like doing the amount of cocaine being described in this song, or like the amount of heroin that's described in like heroin songs or whatever, usually involves the songwriter having lived that experience multiple, 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 multiple times. And now it's to the point where it's the only thing that their brain can think about. And that's sad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of the beginning of the end in a lot of ways for, for Ozzy and the group. Um, I mean, he's still going to be on like four more albums after this one. But, uh, you know, the drug use is going to be a big reason why Ozzy leaves the band and goes solo. So, yeah. Um, now, as far as the wrestling goes, uh, this is not a theme song. But it was played at the start of Ring of Honor shows in like 06, 08-ish to get the crowd pumped up, which is a good idea, you know. And, and they've also used songs like Back in Black, Raining Blood, uh, Song Remains the Same, Hymn 43 by Jethro Tull even, which is a fun choice. But um, yeah, I don't think any wrestler has ever used this as an actual theme, which is uh, a shame because it could be a good theme song, Chris, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it, it's, it's strong and... and... I think for a wrestler, this would be a great song to to latch on and kind of build their brand around because, yeah, it hasn't been played out. It's Sabbath, and it's distinctly that Sabbath sound, and if you heard it, you'd go, oh, that's a Sabbath riff. I don't know that Sabbath riff, but I know Sabbath. And, and I think, like, all good theme songs, it gets you, and you know what you're hearing and who's coming out the curtain within three seconds. There's no question marks. Uh, the theme songs to me that don't work are the ones where you can hear 10 seconds and still not know whose theme it is. A.K.A. a lot of WWE themes nowadays. So you know. I, I actually feel that way with a lot of AEW themes, too, for like the mid-cardy people. Uh, a lot, a lot, and, but yeah, you're absolutely right. A number of the WWE themes now, they're utterly interchangeable. And like, I, I mean, I, I couldn't tell you. If you did like a medley of this, I bet you I'd, be, I'd score like 40%. It'd be really embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, same, same. Going now to the second part of the show here, and it's for Ozzy's solo work. Uh, he left Sabbath in 78, and then the next year he put out his first solo album, Blizzard of Oz. And there were a few big songs on that one, including this song here. This is, of course, Crazy Train.
played Paranoid, which is the iconic Sabbath song. Well, this is the Ozzy solo song. Everyone's heard it a billion times, whether on the radio or TV or at sports games or whatever. And like with Paranoid, there are many, many other Ozzy songs I like more than this one. But it's still a good example of how Ozzy's sound shifted after leaving Sabbath, because it's the 80s now, it's the era of glam metal and making things, you know, a lot brighter production-wise. And now Ozzy has a new band, including this new guitarist, Randy Rhodes, who is a virtuoso style of player, a classically trained guitar player. And his style of playing and his sound are drastically different than Tony's. You know, Ozzy still very much in the metal genre here, of course, but we're a far cry from the days of Black Sabbath and War Pigs and all those songs, Chris. Yeah, uh, Randy Rhodes is a night and day different player than Tony, Tony Iommi. Both great, um, both equally as influential in, in terms of heavy metal. Um, I think if Randy had survived, just he would have had just an unbelievable catalog. Uh, yeah, he's really, really a sensational talent. Um, but you couldn't have a starker departure from technically limited due to physical disabilities Tony Iommi to god-tier lead guitar player Randy Rhodes, who could do anything on the instrument. It was like, you know, a technical innovator. He was a classical musician who brought his classical know-how and his, his advanced knowledge of theory and applied that into heavy playing in a way that really hadn't been done yet. Uh, a big thing that he does here in the verses of Crazy Train is he's doing a very, very fast picking pattern and, and, and playing not not power chords like a Tony Iommi would, because like you know he's got all of his fingers here, so he's able to go. Those those little you've got that going on as he's playing chords that you would pick up from learning classical guitar and, and synthesizing all of that together. Um, and then, of course, you know, Crazy Train is capped off with an incredible solo. Uh, you know, he, he this is this is a, a real masterwork of, of Rhodes's guitar playing. And, and I mean, Rhodes's guitar playing, even after Rhodes is no longer with us, comes to define a lot of what Ozzy is doing all through this decade until he really kind of gets into um, the Zach Wilde era of his playing. Yeah, it's hard to picture Ozzy's solo career taking off as fast as it did without Randy Rhodes. I mean, his talent was so essential to kickstarting Ozzy's solo career in a lot of ways, I think. And his death so tragic to this day. He died so young and so needless, too. It was a, a stupid plane crash, man. It's, it's awful. But we did get two great albums with him and Ozzy, this and Diary of a Madman. So there is that, at least. Um, but in terms of the lyrics, you know, I noticed this as well. Ozzy, whether in Sabbath or in Solo, he still carries that whole political metaphor stuff with him. Because this song is about the Cold War and the fear of destruction. Crazy, but that's how it goes. Millions of people living as foes. Um, heirs of a Cold War. That's what we've become. Inheriting troubles. I'm mentally numb. That whole motif of, of using political metaphors... That all carried over from Sabbath. It's just that this time it's kind of encased in this, um, 
how do I put it? Like a no, I, I get uh, what you're saying. A, a glossier and poppier frame, R- right? Because I'm going off the rails on the crazy train. Like that hook is so much poppier and so much catchier than pretty much all the hooks in Sabbath when he was there, and the sound is much more modernized too. So there is that difference there, Chris. The hook throws you off from the Cold War message because the hook is written in the first person. I'm going off the rails on a crazy train. And so you think that like, like, especially if you're a lazy listener or whatever, you're just hearing the chorus on the radio and you're working at work or whatever, you're basically thinking something like, like life is crazy. My mind is going, I'm kind of going off the rails. My life's so crazy. Um, Whereas as you're breaking down with the lyrics here, the lyrics are actually about um, the idea that the whole world is essentially a train that is running out of control, that like the Cold War has become an out of control locomotive beyond the control of the two operators. Um, And it makes people feel crazy because like you feel just trapped in this like broader system. It's it's like a way deeper thing. And I, I, I think that's, it's an interesting wrinkle in like Ozzy that I don't I feel like people really do underappreciate. He's more political. Like he's not like a Democrats and Republicans sort of like political guy, right? Like he's not gonna show you like he wouldn't be at like a Joe Biden rally or whatever. But he has thoughts about war and peace, politics, how people ought to interact with one another. And a lot of like Sabbath and Ozzy's darkness is sort of like a way a commentary on society that like he he is dark because he's almost like optimistic he wants a world of peace and when he's like this hippie who wanted the world of peace and when he didn't get the world of peace became a goth yeah i mean we'll talk about this later on with other songs but uh you know ozzy for all of his antics and personality and whatnot his songs deal with some pretty serious subject matter you know death and murder and drugs and all that stuff so um, he just so happens to be the guy who, you know, bites the heads off bats. So it kind of gets, you know, bounced out there in a way. But um, but I remember with Crazy Train, I remember playing this on the Shawn Michaels episode because the Rockers had this in SWS in Japan. But also Ozzy and Sharon had this when they guest hosted Raw in 09, I believe. And they did like an America's Got Talent sort of thing because uh, Sharon was a judge on that show. And I remember Chris Masters did the peck dance to Crazy Train. So you got this song that's about the Cold War and the fear of death and destruction. And there's Chris Masters doing the peck dance to it. So, uh, yeah, real uh, real yin and yang stuff there, Chris. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it it's hard to write as... You know, the problem with writing a song that says something is you have to depend on people to actually understand what you're trying to say. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Absolutely. Um So we're going to jump way ahead now to 1991, No More Tears, Ozzy's sixth studio album, and one of his biggest as well. Uh, This one had a lot of hits on it, like Mama, I'm Coming Home and No More Tears. But the one we'll talk about right now is Hellraiser.
this is our first song with Zach Wild, uh, who is Ozzy's longtime guitarist on and off. He's back with him nowadays, actually, and um, there's no big political or world message in this one. This is one of those Ozzy songs where he talks about being a rock star and being on stage, and it's a crazy life, but he loves it, goddammit. So um, he's got a bunch of those songs, of course. And uh, it's funny, you know, the tour of this album was supposed to be his last one. His farewell tour was called No More Tours, actually. And uh, after a while, he went back on that, of course, and uh, he went back on the road because that's what drives him. That's what he loves doing. And it is very similar to a lot of wrestlers over the years. I mean, look at Terry Funk, look at Ric Flair, you know? They just, they can't stay away, a lot of guys. Um, so yeah, this is not a, not one of the more serious Aussie songs in his canon. It's a little bit more fun, a little bit more loosey-goosey, Chris. Yeah, and, and not as, as serious of cut as, as even other songs on that album. Um, I, I mean, I No More Tears is a really interesting song. Uh, like, you have... Zach Wilde, in my opinion, really sort of making his announcement into the Aussie uh, guitar legends echelon. Zach Wilde's sort of signature thing is a technique called the pinch harmonics, which I'm doing everything on an acoustic guitar, so I basically can't really do them in a way that's uh, convincing. Is you that, actually uh, use... that the part where he goes, whoa, and all his songs? Whoa, yeah. <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah, yes. yes the, you know the, the sound, whoa. that's right. Yeah, you know right. the sound. <laughs> <laughs> that is achieved by after you you pick a note with uh, you know with your guitar pick you leave a little bit of your thumb um a, a out there so that you touch the string and if you touch the string at certain nodes on the string there are certain points depending on what note you're playing you get those cool upper register squeals another big user of these like Zach Zach Wild not the only innovator of this um if you ever listen to ZC Top Billy Gibbons loves these. He does these a bunch. And basically, Zach Wilde took that Billy Gibbons technique and put it on overdrive. Um, yeah, no, he, he's a great he's a great player. And I, I feel like Zach Wilde, uh, like, look, uh, he's one, able to laugh at himself. If you've ever seen the Aqua Teen Hunger Force episode where he guest stars and goes off against the Scorpions. Um, that's hilarious. But, like, he also, like, really did fit what Ozzy was trying to do in the 1990s. I, I think that, like, his sound works. It's not my favorite sound. I don't know that his riffs are my favorite riffs in the world. But, like, you know, this is a good example of his playing. Oh, yeah, very much another modernization for Ozzy and his whole sound, uh, this time for the 90s, absolutely. Um, but this song, Hellraiser, it's best known for being the theme of the tag team, the Hellraisers, which was... Uh, Hawk Warrior, Road Warrior Hawk, and Power Warrior, Kensuke Sasaki, because uh, this was after the Road Warriors left WWF and Animal was injured, so Hawk went to Japan and formed this new team with Sasaki called the Hellraisers. Um, so they used the song Hellraiser as their theme, naturally, which I like because it continues the lineage of Iron Man, but it keeps Iron Man special for the Road Warriors. You know, it's like, yes, it's still Ozzy, it's still that same guy, but we're using a new song, a more updated modern song, because it's a newer, updated team, and the classic song, Iron Man, is for that classic team only. So it's pretty cool like that, Chris. Yeah, no, uh, I, I was like looking at that earlier, I was like, oh, that's clever. That's like actually very thoughtful. Uh, it, it's a nice, it's an update, it keeps Iron Man special, it, it puts, you know, Hawk doesn't necessarily know how long Animal's going to be out. I don't know the full story here. So, you know, it gives you something to tentatively hang your hat on for a minute here. Very cool. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, the song, you know, it's just a great song for Hawk and Sasaki in general because they're two badasses. It fits their vibe. It sounds very powerful and cool. It has the ominous intro like Iron Man does. But what I noticed about this song itself is that it can be about wrestling. Walking out on another stage, another town, another place. Sometimes I don't feel right. Nerves wound up too damn tight. People keep telling me it's bad for my health, but kicking back don't make it. Out of control, I play the ultimate role, but that's what lights my fire. Hellraiser! So it works for wrestling as much as it does for the rock star lifestyle, I think. The lifestyles are very similar, I suppose, there, Chris, in a lot of ways. (laughs) Yeah, they really are. Um, And all those, like, late 70s, early 80s, all the way up to 1990 sort of songs about touring and making towns could just as easily describe the life of a professional wrestler or the life of a rock and roll band. Mm-hmm, definitely, definitely. Moving on now to 1995's Osmosis, uh, which actually had Geezer Butler on bass for that album, which is pretty cool. And uh, we'll look at the opening track here. Uh, this is Perry Mason. Back to 1957 here, uh, because as the title implies, uh, the intro is an interpretation of the old Perry Mason TV theme. But it's done in a typical Ozzy macabre fashion with the gothic keyboard. Very much a spooky macabre sounding song in general, really. Um, not like, you know, dingy doom and gloom like the Sabbath stuff was, but. It's more of a, a, a cheeky Aussie wink and a smile kind of thing, I think. But but still, we're talking about like murder and catcher in the rye references. Um, I mean, I love this song. Don't get me wrong, but it's not the most you know raw raw fun time song either, Chris. That's for sure. No, no. Um, it kind of it, it feels to me almost like a like a kind of an update of like Mr. Crowley or something like that. Like Ozzy sort of found that that genre of like writing about a person or whatever and that's what he's trying to do with perry mason i i i I don't know that this entirely works for me as a cut or like as a reinterpretation of the perry mason theme song uh it's interesting it's an interesting and it does have a little bit of that swing i think one thing you mentioned that geezer butler's on there you do kind of hear a little bit of that in the riff riff work that like Wild and Butler do kind of seem to be bringing it together at various points and doing doing riff styles that are reminiscent of the two of them. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I looked this up. Uh, this was used a few times in wrestling by 
a random assortment of people. Uh, Chris Chetty in ECW and Steve Blackman and the Haas Brothers, both in Heartland Wrestling Association, which, you know, as far as I know, none of those guys really fit the mold and aesthetic of this song. Like, I don't see Charlie Haas and think, ah, Ozzy Osbourne, Perry Mason, yes, of course. So, yeah, some very, very strange choices all around there, Chris, I'd say. Yeah, Perry Mason's a strange choice to try to, like, bring into the 1990s, though, too, yeah. right? Like, 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 everything about this is kind of like a... It's weird people making weird choices to use this for a theme song when the song itself is kind of a weird song. Like, it, it's just a... Uh, it, you, you wouldn't... You know, the Adams Family would make more sense for Ozzy to touch <laughs> than Perry Mason, I'm just saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I do like, as well, how it's supposed to be this sort of darker, creepy song... And yet, Zach Wilde can't help but do his woo guitar effect in there. It's like, he does it every damn song, pretty much, no every matter what the subject time. matter is. You know, no. serial killers, pedophiles, demons, alcoholism. It's woo. It's always in there. It, it makes me laugh every time, though, Chris. I can't help it. No, I no, I, I have the same reaction. It, I, I mean, watch the Aqua Teen hunger force episode where he's on it he does he makes fun of his own plague pretty heavily where it's just like he, he's I mean, he's doing it he's basically doing his satire on himself and it's just like like endless like soloing like high with like seemingly just like chaotic like you know gooey distortion and then like squeal 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 uh, very very popular yeah for sure for sure going to go now to 2007 with Ozzy's 10th album Black Rain. Uh, no relation to the Dustin Rhodes character from TNA, thankfully. Uh, this song is called I Don't Wanna Stop. I see this one as like a spiritual successor to Hellraiser, where it's Ozzy's mentality towards his life and career at this point, which is not all that different than what it was before. All my life I've been over the top. I don't know what I'm doing. All I know is I don't want to stop. All fired up. I'm going to go till I drop. You're either in or in the way. Don't make me. I don't want to stop. So like with Hellraiser, he's going to keep on going and doing his thing and be himself and I'm not going to change him or stop him. The key difference, though, is that now Ozzy is sober, which is a pretty big change. And he's also a lot older, too, and has had his fair share of, of health issues. But, um, look, I believe him. You know, we've seen Ozzy go through so much in his life and keep going. So I'm convinced, Chris, that, yeah, he's not going to stop until, you know, his last day. Yeah, no, I, I, 
don't. I think that they have found a way, uh, especially with some production smoke and mirrors and that sort of thing, just like an aging wrestler, to keep this act on the road. It still looks and feels enough in substance like Ozzy that it, it passes and works for people when, when they see Ozzy. Um, you can hear the creeping in of like Robo Ozzy. Uh, like, I'm sure he's getting pitch corrected. A lot of people do that, but like it's the overdubbing that really makes him feel like a robot to me at this point. Um, I feel like they've probably recorded him saying enough words that you could like make new songs out of words that he has said for literally hundreds of years now. Um, and they might, and they very well might. <laughs> um, you know, I, it's fine. Um, I, I just, for me, when we get into this era of Ozzy, the guitar riffs are less memorable. Um, they they fall they start to kind of fall into that WWE theme song thing you mentioned earlier. Where like, I hear the riff, and like I couldn't remember it like 15 minutes later. And I would never have that problem with like a Sabbath riff or like a Randy Rhodes riff or anything like that. It's just it, it's a lot of the writing here. You can just kind of feel that there is this is a business now. They want to write songs that sound fine, um, that are meeting this the meeting the benchmark of what an Aussie song should sound like, but like no one when they are trying to write the next Aussie song is trying to top No More Tears or trying to top Crazy Train or trying to like write like the next big Aussie hit. At this point, they just want to keep making that Aussie album. It's kind of like uh, how ACDC's become like a Coca-Cola band, you know what I mean? Or a McDonald's band where they just come out, they serve you the same thing every few years and that's what they do. And it's still good. I still like it, but yeah, there's no point in changing it because it, it still works. You know, it's still good. So yeah, I um, still like it, but like you know what I mean. Like especially with the ACDC, it's like you know, Back in Black was their you know great album, and then everything since then has just been them you know doing their thing. It's fine. You'd still go and see them live. Uh, ACDC is a great comparison here. It'd still be an entertaining show even now. I'm saying like today, like I'd go and see ACDC today. It'd be great. Uh, Angus Angus rules. Um, but like. You know, they, they you wouldn't if you had to pick between one one of these two albums, Dirty Deeds, Done Dirt Cheap, or 2004's uh, release, whatever that was. Which one are you listening to, Andrew? Yeah, probably Dirty Deeds. But, yeah, right. Uh, look, there's there's still some good stuff later on for ACDC, That's for sure. Sure, I, Satellite Blues is a dope song. They have a they have an occasional good, but they haven't had like a great album like those earlier ones. That's my point. Okay, uh, fair enough. Fair enough, sir. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah, this is for me. This is very much a middle of the road Aussie song. I don't love it. I don't hate it. It's just kind of there for me. Um, but I did notice again, like with Hellraiser, the comparisons between the Aussie lifestyle and the wrestling lifestyles, because. How many times have we seen wrestlers just keep going and going and not stopping? You know, don't try to change my mind. You know, I'm one of a kind. Ain't going to change my bad behavior. There's a lot of wrestlers who fit that bill. Um, I mean, look at Jeff Hardy, for example. You know, Jeff has kept on going and not stopped. And he's kept taking these big bumps and, and being Jeff Hardy all this time. And it's bit him in the ass on many occasions, including most recently, a few months ago with the DUI. Um... So yeah, on the one hand, I'm not going to stop. That can be seen as cool and rebellious and, yeah, you go, my man, you go. And on the other hand, it can be seen as, you know, detrimental, for sure, Chris. Well, but unlike Jeff Hardy, at least Ozzy did get clean. Yes, that's true. You know, I, I, true. I guess I guess I would feel 
different about Hardy's risk taking if it was ex- you know it was exclusively on camera in a wrestling match context. Uh, the issue is that you know, he comes to the ring; it's a risk to work with the man. Um, Ozzy, look, is he cashing in trying to make money for his family? Heck yeah, he is. Is he trying to be as absolute profitable all the way up? Sure, why not? Um, you know, and 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 if you don't. If that's not for you or, like, you, you've got problems with that, I get it. I feel you. Um, but, like, no, this this is fine. It's inoffensive. It's a bit boring. But, like, you know, it's Ozzy making some money. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And um, this was the theme for Brent Albright in ROH, a.k.a. Gunnar Scott. Uh, also a theme for Josh Daniels, Keith Walker. It was also the theme for Judgment Day 2007. And Ozzy performed this song live on SmackDown to promote the show and the album, which I thought was pretty cool at the time. Um, and I believe it was uh, the late Ashley Massaro who introduced him on stage because she was like the rocker girl and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, Ozzy singing on SmackDown. Pretty neat. That's great. Uh, I mean, you know, not not the first time people have performed on it, but like it, Ozzy wouldn't. It's funny to me that there has not been more synergy with Ozzy and WWE over the years. Like Ozzy and Undertaker seems to me to be like <laughs> a relationship that would have been amazing for Vince to have fostered in the 1990s. Um, I, like when Undertaker was at his peak, if like Undertaker's buddy was Ozzy, uh, like not like, you know, on screen running angles or whatever, but like you did something um, that could have been really interesting. Forget Ozzy Osbourne, Limp Biscuit, my friend, huh? Huh? Little little Kid Rock in there as well, perhaps. Just to you know, get some cool dudes in there for Taker. Come on, come on. <laughs> well, uh, look, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll compared to maybe maybe Undertaker was snake bit because he saw how awful the Kiss Demon was and, <laughs> and just didn't want to go the '70s rocker direction. Probably, probably, yeah, yeah. So the last song of the day here is from Ozzy's most recent album, 2020's Ordinary Man. This song is called Straight to Hell. standard stuff here. Uh, This song is about drug addiction. You're flying higher than a kite tonight. You've took the hit and now you feel alright. Your dance be dead, so we must celebrate. I'll make you scream. I'll make you defecate. Uh, So typical Aussie fare there. Um, The defecate line's pretty lousy. I'll give you that. Yep, yep, I'll give you that one for sure. Uh, but, But at this point we're dealing with old man Aussie. He's in his 70s. He's got Parkinson's disease. He's got a cane. And he definitely sounds old. 
But, you know, he's still Aussie. He still has enough of the voice left in him to still be good, and he's still cool as well. He still has that Aussie charm and charisma about him. And the album got a lot of good reviews, too. So, you know, he, he's still... I want to get back to the dark stuff. Like, I want him to get back to the slower, more menacing thing. I think that works better for old man Ozzy. That, like, now that you're older, rather than trying to do these high-energy rocker things, uh, which is also, as you said, hard when you've got a cane and you've got Parkinson's stuff, I want him to get back to a little bit of, like, what we were talking at the gay. The Black Sabbath, you know, that that vocal style that he's doing on the first song, Black Sabbath. Um, well, I, yeah. Well, if you heard the last Sabbath album, 13, the reunion album, there you go. That was older Ozzy slowing it down, going back to the more, you know, crushing doom and gloom stuff with Geezer and Tony and going back to those roots. So, I mean, I can see why Ozzy with his solo stuff would want to keep doing what he's doing and not deviate from that. Um, but he did go back to that slower style with the Sabbath album. Yeah, um, I, I think I'm, I think that's that's more where he's at now. Um, it, it, to that point, lines like "I'll make you defecate." Um, they, it, it, it's it's kind of like having reason and season rhyming in Master of Puppets or something. It just makes you kind of have an eternal cringe. Uh, it, it, it it's it's hard. It's that, that was a very hard line for me to hear him sing, Andrew. I'm, I'm like, still recovering <laughs> a little bit. It's not his best line, I agree. It's not, it's not his best. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I'm reminded of last year when I went to see Genesis. And it was their last tour ever. And it was the last American show for them ever. So I, I had to go. And Phil Collins came out. And he's around Ozzy's age. And he's been you know so physically shot these past couple of years he walks out with a cane and he has to sit down in a chair the entire show and you know his voice is still good but not what it once was but damn it it's still phil collins he's still got that presence and that charisma that you just could pull you in and ozzy is very much the same way you know is he still the same ozzy of you know 75 or 80 or 85 or whatever no of course not it's you know time has taken its toll on the guy but he still has that charm. He still has that way about him that can just, you know, pull you in no matter what, Chris. Yes. Uh, Ozzy's kind of like Flair, right? Uh, it, it, you know, I was watching that last match video package they put together. I mean, you know, he's not what he once was, but there's something still deeply compelling about the dude, even in, like his late in his late stage here. Um, He's like one of the great characters of our lives. I, I It's weird because it's like you and I have grown up our entire lives and Ozzy Osbourne has just always been there as a character um, in, in peak form. It's going to be weird at some point where like Ozzy Osbourne isn't there just because he's like such an iconic personality, kind of like Kiss or something like that. Uh, you just you just don't remember a time when there wasn't an Ozzy thing because that never existed during your lifetime. You've actually always been living during the Ozzy era. Yeah, he is ubiquitous. That's for sure. That's that's the word to go with, ubiquitous. Because uh, he's always been there. You're right. Um, I mean, same for ACDC as well, you know? And, and same for Aerosmith and the Rolling Stones and Deep Purple and all these classic rock bands. I mean, they've all been around their entire lives. But time marches on. And they all get older. And soon enough, they're all going to be gone, unfortunately. So... Appreciate them now while they're still here, and appreciate Ozzy while he's still here. 
we should do that. Um, actually, uh, one more thing about Straight to Hell that I do find funny. Um, this was the theme for Hell in a Cell last year, which, you know, Straight to Hell, Hell in a Cell, that all lines up there. But I, I think the whole stuff about drug addiction went over people's heads. Uh, enjoy the ride. I'll plant my bitter seed. You'll kill yourself and I will watch you bleed. Like, that's pretty serious stuff. And meanwhile, you've got, like, wacky Sami Zayn versus Kevin Owens or whatever. Like, it's – there's a bit of a disconnect there, I think, Chris. <laughs> right. That, that, isn't that the recurring theme here? Like, like Ozzy always wants to write about something kind of fairly serious. Uh, he wants his songs to have some sort of meaning to them. Like, each song has to have, like, lyrics that are about specific stuff. Uh, and it seems like it's happened to get throughout his career. People – as I said earlier, you, the problem with writing songs that say something is you have to be dependent on people to understand what those songs are saying. Definitely, definitely. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode of Music of the Mat. Thank you so much for listening, and Chris, thank you once again for being here. As always, you are just a fountain of information about all sorts of music nerddom there. So uh, this is just a lot of fun talking about Ozzy's songs here. Uh, you might call this episode an Ozfest perhaps chris oh huh? i, I huh? love that i love that that is that's marketable that's marketable. I, I, i'll put it out there i mean if if sharon wants to use it give me a call you know so yeah <laughs> um but uh, yeah uh, any plugs you want to give right ahead chris yeah don't worry about the government is my main show it's uh the politics show that i do you can find that over at patreon.com slash dwatg and the other show that i do here on the voices of wrestling podcasting network is Shake Them Ropes, which I host with the recovering Jeffrey Hawkins. I keep him in high spirits. I bring the content, the action, the excitement, and Hawkins brings the actual news stories and all the things that you guys actually legitimately listen to the show for. <laughs> so go and check that out over Odd Voice of Wrestling and go and sub up and listening to uh, Don't Worry About the Government, which you can hear free episodes on Patreon.com, and you could subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Yeah, Jeff is uh, – he's good people. That's for sure. Oh, whoa, whoa, um, whoa. And, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not go that far. <laughs> Good people. Okay. Yes, yes. Well, um, well, I, I sent my regards to Jeff on Twitter because he's been dealing with some, you know, health issues lately. And uh, uh, I'll do it again here. You know, Jeff is a great friend and a great guest. And uh, I know he'll get past this current issue he's dealing with here. So, uh, Jeff, if you're listening, stay strong, my friend. He'll get past it. I know he will. Yeah, he said he's committed to making my life a living hell for all of his days. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, Music of the Mat is, of course, part of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network, just like Shake Them Ropes is. You can find other great podcasts on there at VoicesOfWrestling.com. Follow the show on Twitter at Music of the Mat. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew T. Rich. VoicesOfWrestling.com slash Discord for all discussions and comments. VoicesOfWrestling.com slash Donate for all donations. Uh, just click the big Donate button beneath the name Music of the Mat or Shake Them Ropes. That works too, of course. And if you donate, hey, thanks so much. You're awesome. And of course, rate, review, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other places. Chris, thank you again, and I'll see you around. Thank you so much. All right, for Chris Novembrino, I'm Andrew Rich, and I'll see you next time on Music of the Mat. Take care, guys.
Music of the Mad is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The songs used throughout this show are property of their respective copyright holders.